Everyone knows that when you get married, life changes. Just by virtue of being united to another person, your, your life, your habits, your actions will change. But just imagine, what if you married a, a king or a queen? In that case, things would really change. Overnight, you'd gain a completely new status, and your life would never be the same. Just by virtue of that union, you'd at least be expected to act differently, speak differently, carry yourself differently, even think differently. Marrying a a king or queen would mean a a radical shift in life as you know it. In a way, this can kind of help us understand how and why the Christian life is supposed to change you. How things should change when you become a Christian. Because when you come to Christ, you enter a spiritual union with him. It's kind of like a spiritual marriage. And by virtue of that union, your life should change. But how much should your life change when you're united to Christ? Some people claim to be united to Jesus, but their lives haven't changed that much. It really kind of depends on how you view Jesus. Who is he? To some, he's like a spiritual guru. Jesus gives them advice, how to walk down a good, peaceful path in life. Gives them some wisdom, but it's not like Jesus is the exclusive source of truth and guidance. You know, if other voices sound better, they're free to deviate and go their own way. And for others, Jesus is their ticket to prosperity. They're looking to gain health and wealth and a prosperous life. And so they will change their ways to get what they want. But ultimately, they view Jesus as there to serve them, not the other way around. And like I said, how you view Jesus will largely determine how much your life changes when you're united to him by faith. Just who are you following? Whom are you marrying, so to speak? That's an important question. It's likewise important for you to know that you're not being united to just a guy or a guru or even a king. That Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's even the creator and sustainer of the universe. To be united to him, it's no small thing. And it should lead to no small change in your life. Being the lord of the universe He has the right to completely direct your life according to his will. And by virtue of being united to him, it's only right for you to conform to him. You know, if marrying an earthly king or queen would drastically change your life, then just think how marrying the king of kings, being united to the king of kings, that should mean that the complete and total reordering of everything about you your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes, your speech. Now, every part of you should conform to this union. Now, I know it sounds radical, but Jesus is the one who himself demanded radical discipleship. That if you were to follow him, true disciples must come to love him vastly more than their parents or spouse or siblings or children, even life itself. It sounds radical until you realize who Jesus is is. When you come to see him as the God-man, though, the Lord of the universe, his radical demands are only right. And they're good, too, because they lead us to blessing. It just sounds like, though, you need to come to terms with just who Jesus is. Who is he? What does the Bible really say? What are the implications? It's something you need to figure out. And our passage in Colossians is going to help us do that big time. 
So you can take your Bibles now and open them to Colossians chapter 1. Find your way to Colossians chapter 1. And we have it before us in, in verses 15 through 20, which we started into last week. It's one of the most concentrated doses of teaching on who Jesus is in the whole Bible. You know, it's not the market they sell those frozen cans of concentrated orange juice. We did that as a kid. You add water, it turns into a gallon. Right? You, we have just six little verses here, but you start unpacking and, and unraveling them. This turns into an ocean of truth. This is a big passage. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And Paul is writing here to, to showcase the cosmic supremacy of Jesus. And he's doing that by just putting on display his character. He's not just a guy or a teacher. He's the supreme ruler of all things, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, judge of all things. He's preeminent and preexistent. He's the fullness of God in human form. In a word, Jesus is supreme. And the implications of this are far-reaching, and they're spelled out throughout Colossians. But at the very least, we should gather already that you know, being united to such a one as this, that should change everything in your life, everything about us should come to reflect this union with with Christ, the God-man. He's really the meaning of life itself. Again, this all stems from his identity. But look, you don't have to take my word for it. We're just going to read and behold for ourselves in this passage that the cosmic supremacy of Jesus. So let's, let's read the passage again. It's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And look down at verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. This passage Paul gives us nine powerful displays of the supremacy of Christ We started into this last week. We made it through the first three. Number one, Jesus is the image of God. Two, Jesus is preeminent. And three, Jesus is the beginning and the end. We found that the first three, they were just so big and meaty and significant that they they merited their own time. We're going to finish this morning, though, with the remaining six of these nine powerful displays of Christ's supremacy. So with that said, let's, let's carry on. And so we have technically number four here in verse 17. Number four, Jesus is pre-existent. Number four, Jesus is pre-existent. And so we're going to pick up today at verse 17. Where it says next, he is before all things. Verse 17 starts with this really short and simple statement that Jesus is before all things. really hinges on this preposition before which is used to speak of precedence, either in proximity or time 
or rank. And the time element is likely included here. That's how Paul most often uses this word. That Jesus is before all things in time. Meaning he's pre-existent. And so not only is Jesus separated from creation ontologically. Which means he's just above it in his being. But he's also separated from creation temporally. He existed before it. In addition, though, I believe Paul also intends to restate Christ's supremacy and preeminence and rank here. Because you see, he doesn't say he was before all things, but he is before all things. Present tense. He's pre-existent and preeminent just by his very nature. He's truly before all things. And hopefully you can see from last week to today, in this passage, Jesus just continually set apart, set above, set beyond, set before this creation in every dimension. And from the Colossian heresy to Arius, some would contend that, you know, this Jesus, he's just a part of creation. He was a created being. He's just one of many spirit beings or powerful figures. But Paul labors to show otherwise, that he's, he's not a part of this created order, but he's set above, set apart, here set before in just every way. And Paul's not the only one who says this. That Jesus is presented as the eternally pre-existent Son of God, co-eternal with the Father throughout Scripture. You know, this was the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. I read last week Isaiah 9-6, which says again, you know, a child will be born to us. Speaking of the Messiah. And he says, he will be called mighty God and eternal Father. How could a child be called mighty God and eternal father? This was the expectation. Also Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This Messiah was to be no mere man, but the eternal God in human form, where he's not just pre-existent, but eternally pre-existent. The New Testament likewise opens up with an introduction of Jesus as the eternally pre-existent one. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And every Jew would say that only God was there in the beginning. That was part of his deity, this eternality. And John 1 affirms, God was there in the beginning. Like Genesis 1 says, but, but so was another, this divine logos, this, this son of God. There's only one God, but he exists in, in three persons. And so it can be said that this word was with God, and was God at the same time. You can dwell on the mystery of the Trinity for a long time, but at least John makes clear that the one who would come down, verse 14, and dwell among us, Jesus, that he was that eternal Son of God. And Jesus himself says in John 17, 5, he prays, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, before the world was, where Father, Son, and Spirit shared just an eternal glory long before creation. 
And then John 8, 58, you remember Jesus responded to the Pharisees and said, truly, truly, before I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, look, some of you might be newer to the faith. You might not know the background to that statement. But way back in Exodus, Moses asked God, you know, who should I say has sent me to free the people? In Exodus 3.14, God tells him, he says, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. How does God identify himself? How can he even describe himself in human terms? He simply says, I am. Who are you? I am. This is the, the eternal, pre-existent, self-existent God. And Jesus is that same God incarnate. Only now he's come to, to rescue us. And the takeaway here is just to have a, a high view of Jesus. You know, unlike Arius, you can't say that there was once a time when the Son was not. No, he's not a part of this creation He's before all things, in time and in rank. And we need to share a supreme view of him. Because only such a one can, can truly rescue us from an eternal death. But thankfully, though, Jesus is this supreme and preexistent Savior. Now, we're just getting started this morning. We have several more to go. So let's, let's carry on. Number five, fifth display. Of his supremacy. Number five, Jesus is the sustainer. Still in verse 17, he's the sustainer. Look again, verse 17. It says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. And Jesus holds all things together. It's an old verb, speaks of coherence. Jesus is the unifying force in nature. He's the glue of existence. Speaking of Jesus as the sustainer, it's just like Hebrews 1.3, which is another big verse on Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. It's talking about Christ. You know, in ancient Greek mythology, the Titan Atlas was condemned to an eternal punishment by Zeus, and he was made to hold up the skies on his shoulders. It's not the earth. Most people think it's the earth, but he's actually made to hold up the skies on his shoulders to keep the heavens from crashing down on the earth forever. It's true. Creation must be sustained, but it's the Lord Jesus who does so simply by the word of his power. You know, the same power that called all things into existence, that same power he uses to now sustain all things. And he does so every moment. This verb, hold together, it's in the perfect tense, speaks of a past action with ongoing results. He's still supplying that power which holds existence, the universe together. And I really think being sustainer sets his supremacy just up another level, right? It's one thing to be the creator of something. That's big. But it's another to be this, the ongoing sustainer of something. Just kind of think about that. You know, Steve Jobs was one of the uh, 
founders, creators of Apple Computer back in 1975. They created the platform, turned into this massive business. But in 1985, he was forced out. He was taken out. And at that point, until he was reinstated many years later, but for that stretch, he had no more involvement in Apple. He had started it. He created the thing, but it was no longer under his control or guidance or influence. He wasn't sustaining it. He was just totally now cut off. And that's how deists think of creation, by the way. They think, you know, okay, God made it. He created the thing. It's like, like a spinning top. He wound it up and let it go. And now he's hands off. He's not guiding it or controlling it or sustaining it. But to the contrary, though, the triune God is intimately involved in his creation. He's actively controlling it and guiding it and sustaining it every moment. In fact, apart from God's will and his power, the universe would just cease to exist. And so not only does the universe owe its creation to Christ, like Paul said back in verse 16, but it also owes its its ongoing existence to Christ. And to me, that, that's just, that's power. That's supremacy. And it really has some amazing implications when you think about it. And for example, just think about Christ's treatment in his death. You know, from the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, they treated him poorly. They accused him, slandered him, struck him, spat on him, even says they plucked out his beard. Then they turned him over to the Romans who further scourged him and beat him, tortured him, humiliated him, all before executing him on a cross. There's a lot of people involved in in the, the brutal death of Jesus. But you know what's so amazing though? The wonder of the cross is that they were actually crucifying the God man. Though he was in his humble state, he was the one who made them. And he was the one who sustained them. You know, if Jesus wanted to, all he had to do was just withdraw the sustaining word of his power. And all those people who were killing him would just cease to exist. That's all he had to do. At any moment, he could have done so. But but do you realize that that the same God, the Son, and his power was sustaining his executioners? Do you ever think about that? But of course, this implies that his death was, was part of a plan. And indeed it was. You recall how Jesus himself said, no one's going to take away my life. He's going to lay it down on his own initiative. John ten eighteen. And Jesus was killed on the cross, but not for a moment was he overpowered. It was instead the Father's will to send the Son incarnate to die on the cross to redeem fallen man. I know it can be a big pill for some to swallow. To believe that you know, the one who died on the cross was actually the, the creator God, the sustainer of the universe in human form. But that's what scripture teaches. But also know this was part of God's plan to display his supremacy. That he sovereignly allowed and sustained a sinful and rebellious creation. But he's done so in order that the son might be shown supreme in redeeming that fallen creation. That he would turn death itself into victory and create a people for his own glory. 
And I think this really leads us to the next display of Christ's supremacy. Number six, Jesus is the head. Number six, Jesus is the head. And this marks a division. Remember last week I told you this, this passage, 15 through 20, goes together. Some even think it might be an ancient hymn from the early church. But it has a clear dividing line. Verses 15 through 17, they go together. And they're really showing Christ's supremacy over creation. He is the preeminent and preexistent God who created and sustains all things for himself. But now the second half, verses 18 through 20, they go on to show Christ's supremacy over the new creation. And now we're talking salvation. That God made all things. And they were very good. But they didn't stay that way. This creation is fallen, marred, cursed. But part of his plan for his greater glory was the display of his divine salvation. So here we see Jesus as that divine savior. Which only further exposes his supremacy. That Jesus, he's supreme over creation. But now Paul's going to show he's, he's also supreme over the new creation. And that is the church. And so look at verse 18 where we carry on. It says next, he is also head of the body, the church. So we have next a familiar metaphor for Jesus, the head of the body. There's many verses which speak of the church as the body of Jesus. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Like 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says the body is one. It has many members. And from there we learn that, you know, this is a diverse body, the church, but has an essential unity. There's many different members, different functions, but they all come together as one in Christ. Just like the human body, right? Hands, feet, heart, lungs, bones, muscles, so diverse and different, different functions, different roles, but they all are able to cooperate together and and come together to create one body. And so it goes for the church. But of course, here in verse 18, you see how the emphasis is not really on the body here, but on the head of that body, which is Christ. And the metaphor carries over because we all know the head's relationship to the body, the one of primacy. Even in the ancient world before modern medicine, they still understood the head's primacy over the body. I mean, look, you learn that pretty quick in ancient warfare. You cut off an arm or a leg in battle, and that person can still live and function. You cut off a head, and it's, it's game over. And they understood you know, the head is the position of control, governance, and direction. It's the head that dictates where the body goes, what the body does. And that apart from the head, the many members of the body would just exist in chaos and disarray. But the head provides order. And it turns this diverse body into a unified machine that's capable of of doing great things. And I really think that the human body, you know, in one sense, like forget the stars, just look at the human body. It's such a marvel of God's creation. It has all these extremely complex systems. The skeletal and the muscular system frame our body. The circulatory system transports blood to the whole body. The respiratory system oxygenates that blood, keeps it going. The digestive system transforms. All this 
all types of food, and some bad food, into energy. And the immune system fights off disease. The list goes on. And the complexity of each of these systems is really mind-boggling. But even on top of that, they all have to be precisely timed and ordered and controlled to work together for us to live. And of course, we know that's made possible by the head, by the brain, which is controlling, directing, even without us thinking, everything in our body. And maybe this is why there's few better pictures of Christ's relationship to the church. He's just our supreme source of control and guidance and direction and just life. To him belongs the authority and the right to direct his body according to his will. That's a good thing, though, to come under the headship and the lordship of Christ. Because his will is simply for this body to grow. That's all he wants to see. He wants to see his body under, under his guidance to grow and to mature. That can only happen, though, when you're attached to the head. And we've already learned from last week, you know, Jesus, he's the head of all things. He's the head supreme in rank over all creation. But here we see how, at the same time, he's uniquely connected to his body, the church, as its source of life, new life, eternal life, growth. He is supreme over his church. And this leads us to carry on to number seven. Seventh display of Christ's supremacy. Number seven, Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is resurrected. Go back to verse 18. It says, he is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So next, Paul says, Jesus is the beginning. You see that? He is the beginning. And that word speaks of source or primacy. He's already established Jesus as the supreme source of creation. But now he's establishing Jesus as the supreme source of the new creation, the church. It's the Lord Jesus who gave beginning to the church by raising from the dead those who were lost. Kind of think of Ezekiel's vision. He's a valley filled with dry bones, just in heaps, scattered, dry bones. But the Spirit of God comes and, and brings them to life, and, and that is by Christ's command. He, he speaks the same power with which he made the world. He speaks new life, and the dead come to life. The spiritually dead come to new life. And what kind of life are we talking about? Well, resurrection life. All people are lost in sin, spiritually dead, destined for an eternal death. But Jesus came to raise these dead and and give them instead eternal life. To do that, though, he had to conquer sin and death itself, which he did in his resurrection. So that's why Paul connects the dots between Jesus being the beginning of the church to being the firstborn from the dead. See that in verse 18, he's firstborn from the dead. We've seen that word firstborn before. It's back in verse 15. We found it to mean preeminent, first in rank or honored status. And so it goes here. It's the idea of primacy. 
Now, Jesus was not technically the first person to experience the death and then come back to life. There are a few other resurrections in Scripture before him, notably like his friend Lazarus. That being said, though, those, those few people who tasted death once and came back to life, you know, they, they suffered a double tragedy because they all were going to have to die again. They're going to have to die twice. But not so for Jesus. That Christ's resurrection was of a different order. Because he died and rose, never to die again. And so he set above and over this new order, this new resurrected order of creation. Thankfully, though, he's not the only member of this new order of creation. But he died and rose so that he might lead others, those in his body, to the same resurrected life. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Many will come after. Romans 8, 29 says, Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of a son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That Jesus is the firstborn, the preeminent one in this resurrected order of creation. But he's not the only one. It's God's will for a new heavens and a new earth to be populated by a new people risen from the dead. Those who follow after Christ in his resurrected life. And that, of course, only happens by faith in him. It's like Jesus said to Martha in John eleven twenty-five. 25. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he said to her, do you believe this? It's only those who believe in this Jesus, trusting him as the supreme Lord who will be raised to that new life. And therefore, as as Paul says in verse 18, it's only right for this Jesus to have first place in everything, to be first in our lives, first in everything. You know, being supreme, he should have first place in everything, as he says in verse 18. This first place is Christ's by right and now also by deed in rising from the dead, never to die again. He's displayed his cosmic supremacy for all to see. So to him alone belongs first place. This is emphatic. He himself will have first place. He stands alone at the top of the podium. It's not like kids sports today where first place is shared. Everyone's first. Or you go to the Mid-State Fair, the exhibition hall. It's, it's like they're just giving away first place blue, ri- blue ribbons. Like everyone gets a blue ribbon. No, Jesus exclusively holds the position of supremacy over creation. And now over the new creation being the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is resurrected. I don't know about you. It feels like we've already covered like a lot of stuff about Jesus, but you know, this, this is a tidal wave of truth and it just, it keeps coming. The waves keep coming so that there's two more to go. Number eight, Jesus is the fullness of God. A couple more here. Number eight, Jesus is the fullness of God. Now we're in verse 19. 
He carries on and says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. This is interesting, this word fullness, pleroma. This is a a very, a key term. It was used later by the Gnostics. Remember that second century heresy, Gnosticism. They use this word fullness a lot. And they believe that the fullness of God, the fullness of God was divided up among these spiritual beings, this hierarchy of spiritual beings. And the presence of God was divided. The fullness was divided. Now, Gnosticism came later, but there's a good chance that in Colossae, that, that thinking, that terminology is already being used and developed. And so it could be that right here, Paul is picking up on the language of the Colossian heresy and, and turning it against them. But either way, though, look, he makes clear that the fullness of God dwells in one place, and that's in Christ. That the person of Jesus is the exclusive locale of the fullness of deity. It's it's a pretty stunning statement when you think about it. In case you're not clear what he means, he repeats himself. Like, turn the page to Colossians 2.9, which we'll get to in probably a couple years. But Colossians (laughs) Colossians 2.9, he says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It really is harder, it really, it's hard to conceive of a stronger statement on the full deity of Jesus. Now, you may recall how it pleased God to, to cause his presence to dwell in the tabernacle and in the temple, remember? The temple used to be the, the locale of God's presence among his people on earth. But that was a mere shadow of things to come. That now it's fully and finally in the person of Jesus that God dwells among us in all of his fullness. Remember we read earlier John 1, 1 about this divine word who was with God and was God. Well, it says later of that same divine word in verse 14 of John 1, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But that word dwelt there, that he dwelt among us. It's literally the word for the tabernacle. It's saying he tabernacled among us. And that truly the glory of God was present in Jesus in all his fullness. And now you need to recognize that, that the fullness of God is not found in a building or a temple but in a person. And unless you're united to that person by faith, you will be cut off from God's presence. You know, through this message, I fear that eventually you're just going to start tuning me out because I keep saying the same thing, but what else is there to say that Jesus, he's just the center of all things. He's kind of a big deal. He's supreme. And so it goes. But why Jesus though? Why did it please God to cause his fullness to dwell incarnate in Jesus? Because Jesus would be the means God would use to reconcile this world to himself. And not just the world, but all of creation. And so lastly, we find number nine. Jesus is the reconciler. Jesus is the reconciler. He carries on in verse 20. 
He says, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And here we see it was God's pleasure through the incarnation in Christ to, to reconcile. He wanted to reconcile. This is an intensified form of the word reconcile. It means to reconcile completely. It speaks of full restoration or the bringing about of a complete peace after a great disturbance. Just imagine the ocean waters are just violently churning in a storm. And then just in a second, they're stilled and they become just like a sheet of glass. That's reconciliation. It's just total peace and harmony after a disturbance. And this world exists in turmoil and rebellion against God. This creation is marred because of man's rebellion and and angelic rebellion. And everything's out of order. In the human dimension, there's anger, hatred, strife, murder, oppression, injustice. The creation itself is subjected to futility. So there's floods and fires, hurricanes, earthquakes, disease. You know, all the chaos in the spiritual realm only makes that all worse. So you just stick like a huge out of order sign on the planet. It's broken. But God is not unaware of this. This is not an accidental state of affairs. He's purposed and allowed this rebellion. He's even sustained it by his power. So as to give way to his glory in reconciliation. That God will restore order to this creation. And he's pleased to do so through his son, Christ Jesus. And it says through the blood of his cross. And here, by the way, this is where the incarnation gets visceral. That, you know, so far we've been thinking of Jesus as supreme and divine creator, sustainer. And he is. But that God came down as a man and he suffered a bloody, violent death. Which was the culmination of all human and demonic rebellion against God. But through his atoning death and resurrection, you see the veil completely lifted on his glory. Because in the cross, Jesus conquered everything that was wrong. Sin, death, Satan. And so, it's through this victory on the cross that all things will be reconciled. He's going to reconcile all things to himself. Now, this verse does not say all will be saved, all will be redeemed. But one way or another, there's going to be a state of peace and order and righteousness in the world. That God will not let creation groan in futility forever or rebellion just to keep going on. He's going to put an end to it through the Lord Jesus and a state of peace will be ushered in one of two ways, either via salvation or via judgment. But both the realm of heaven and the realm of earth will be pacified and brought back under the rule of God through Christ. First Corinthians fifteen twenty five says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And we look forward to the coming day of Christ's kingdom, where he will forcibly put an end to all rebellion. He will establish a new order, a new heavens and a new earth, populated by a new people. His body is bride.
but all those who persist in opposing his supremacy, they will have no part in that new place. They'll be cut away and cut off forever. Now, these are some remarkable truths. Now, I wasn't lying last week when I said Paul just kind of puts on a fireworks show of the identity of Jesus. But for many, it can be hard to believe. How did the world see Jesus in his time? He was a nobody. He was a peasant born in the, the podunk town of Nazareth. He lived in obscurity, gathered an extremely small following. But in the end, he was rejected by his own people and then executed as a criminal. End of story. You know, all that's true, but that's not the end of the story. That scripture reveals there's much more to the identity of this Jesus. And just from this passage, we've learned that he is also the image of God. He is preeminent. He's the beginning and the end. He's preexistent. He's the sustainer. He's the head. He's resurrected. He's the fullness of God. And he is the reconciler. And so, so again, in a word, he, he's just supreme. Supreme over all things. And by the way, did you notice in this passage that, that phrase over and over again, all things, all all things. There's a universality to his supremacy. Let me read some of it again with emphasis. It says, he's the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is first place in everything. All the fullness dwells in him. He reconciles all things to himself. This is why I say it's not just supremacy, it's cosmic supremacy. And so in reality, we behold in Jesus, our God. We see in Jesus the highest revelation of who God is. And we also see in Jesus the highest revelation of what God has done. And this fallen, rebellious world is out of order. And God would have been just to incinerate it a long time ago. But in Christ, we see the love of God shine forth. I love this quote from commentator David Garland. He says, quote, This world may be corrupted, disordered, and ravaged by sin, but God still loves it. And God intends for it to fulfill its destiny in Christ. Sin has defaced Christ's work in creation, but he came to undo its consequences and to bring concord in a universe out of harmony with God. End quote. And Jesus is the one who made all things for himself. He's not going to allow sin to get the last word in this world. So it is this Jesus who will return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and set things right in salvation and in judgment. He will reconcile all things to himself. But far better for you, though, to be reconciled in, in the salvation part of that. And that comes by faith in his work on the cross and faith in his person. You realize you you have to get Jesus right. You must be trusting and believing in in the true Jesus, not one of man's making. You have to see Jesus for who he really is and trust him, that one, to save you and, and he will. This is a big deal because in Colossians, some were starting to wander from Christ. 
And Paul feared, like 2 Corinthians 11.3, that some of them would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And that was happening. We find later in chapter 2.19 that some were not holding fast to the head of the body, which causes the growth. Drifting from Christ is a recipe for disaster and emptiness. And people then and now are seeking fulfillment, satisfaction, fullness in life. And all people sense a bit of emptiness and meaninglessness in life. And so they look for something to fill that void and give life meaning. And many voices tell them, you know, if you want to be full, you want to be complete in life, you just need this. You need money, savings, good health, relationships, cars, possessions, vacations, knowledge, enlightenment, secret truths. But that's all fool's gold. That only in Christ is life's meaning found. And and only Christ satisfies or, or fills up our cup. You need to go to the one who made you and sustains you to fill you. And you have to recognize you were made for him. And then you were saved for him. And fullness in life comes by holding fast to the head. You don't need to look outside Jesus. And this in turn translates into making Christ first place in your life. In everything. And that's his rightful place by nature and then by deed. But he should be exclusively first in our life. But we all know, we're of the flesh, how easily we we let Christ's seat of supremacy in our lives be just eclipsed by something else. We're we're quickly distracted and carried away. But I pray that as you, you capture a vision of who Jesus really is, that you resolve to treat him accordingly, and that is to make him first in everything. And then do you know what that means? It doesn't mean that of all the things in your life, Jesus has first place. It doesn't mean that Jesus simply tops the list of your priorities in life. Like your list says, you know, number one, Jesus, number two, family, number three, work, four, school, five, recreation. No, that's wrong. What this means is that every single aspect, every every category of your life, Jesus should be first place. He's first place in relationships, first place in jobs, first place in school, first place in work, first place in church, first place in Bible reading, first place in what movies you watch, first place in what music you listen to, first place in whom you hang out with, first place in what you do on Friday nights, first place in hobbies, first place in marriage, first place in parenting. You get the picture. First place in everything. And every single category you have in life, Jesus should be first place, meaning he's the controlling, guiding, ruling factor to everything. That's what it looks to to live holding fast to the head. I know this sounds radical, extreme, even a bit crazy, but that's only until you realize who Jesus is and who you are married to by faith, which by the way is another mystery that we would be able to be united to such a one. By faith. But when you realize this, when you realize who he is, that, that this union, we are united to him by faith, that, that should change everything about you. That we are his disciples. 
We're his body. We're his bride. Let that encourage you, but also let it challenge you. That are, are you living that way? Don't let this be the end. We're going to move on from here, from Colossians, you know, the next passage. But don't let this be the end. You need to continue to, to think deeply and remember the true nature and identity of Christ. You need to recall often his supremacy. And as you do so and you respond in faith, you'll find him sustaining you and then supplying your life with fullness and satisfaction, meaning, purpose, and joy. And you're going to find at the end of this chapter that Paul says, the whole, the whole goal of our life here and now is just to be made complete in Christ, to be made full in Christ. That's his purpose for us in this life. But know here now that that starts by seeing him for who he is. He is supreme. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for your, your word of truth, which, which fills us, which reveals who you are, what you've done. And we find in, in your son Jesus the, the ultimate revelation of who you are and what you've done. And that this, this Jesus, this God-man is supreme, the creator, the sustainer, the preexistent, preeminent one, also the savior, the head of the body, and that's us. He rose from the dead and, and he did so to call others to follow him, that by your supreme grace and mercy that you would even choose to save others and to, to draw them back into your presence in the dwelling place of God. These are mysteries yet also revealed in scripture that we marvel at. And this, these are deep waters. This is the deep end. And I pray we just stay here and, and think deeply on our Savior. Who, who are we following? Who are we believing in and trusting? Reunited to the Supreme Lord. I pray that elicits from our hearts this morning, Lord, true worship, praise, thanksgiving, and then a life that changes because of this, this union. And may we make Christ first in our lives by which he'll be glorified. And we are simply blessed. You've designed that to, to fill us when we make him first. And so that may, may that be our resolution this morning, to make him first place in all things. That is his place after all. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.